The reading is from um, Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2, in the, uh, in the Church Bible, page 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much. It's definitely worth uh, keeping a Bible to hand. Uh, that will definitely help you as we go along. But lovely to be here with you this morning. Um, confession time, double confession. I have never heard a sermon on Genesis 1, 1 to 2. And I've certainly never preached one. Uh, so this is a first. Um, I've been rather intimidated by these verses. And I, I've not been able to, set, I, I said to the team, I'm going to write the sermon way before Christmas, and I've just not been able to settle down to it. Um, so rather than provide you uh, with an elaborate and lofty scene-setting introduction, I'm just going to try and dive straight into the text uh, and see what's going on. You can have the first slide, please, um, Stuart, thank you. We can't fail to notice how carefully and beautifully crafted the actual text of Genesis 1 is. It is an exquisite literary whole. There's not a word out of place. It's a hybrid. It's not quite poetry in the way that the Psalms are poetry, but it's certainly more than a simple story. So the first thing we need to do, and that video really helped, is to get a feel for the whole of the opening chapter from Genesis 1-1 through to 2-3, which is what we're going to be looking at between now and before Easter. In today's opening two verses, we have the initial creation of all things by God with the observation that it is, as we heard in Hebrew, tohu vabohu, formless and empty. And we will come back to that. Then, as we heard on days one, two, and three, God commands form and structure into place, creating light and dark. Then the air and uh, the water and the atmosphere, and then land and plants. So the first three days show God bringing form and order to what was previously and initially formless. Then days four, five, and six show God commanding creatures to fill what was previously empty. The sun, the moon, and stars fill space. Then birds and sea creatures fill the air and the water. And then finally, land animals and people fill the earth. And as we heard in our introduction, the number seven, the Hebrew number for perfection and wholeness, is everywhere. Uh, seven words in verse one, 14 words in verse two. The word God comes 35 times, earth 21 times, heaven 21 times. Of course, there are seven days and seven times it's reported that creation was good. So the author has really carefully thought about this and has planned out, in a sense, in a way, probably in English, we would plan a poem or a song. So every word, every syllable is counting. If we're going to have the next slide, please. As we considered last year, uh, these words, in the beginning, God, are arguably the most famous opening words of any book in any culture. Now, in some ways, it is rather an obvious, you might even say necessary way, to start a book about God 
time and history. It's the, well, it all started when, beginning, uh, that we use and hear all the time when we are explaining to other people how things came to be. So if you're explaining to your grandchildren how you got married, if you're explaining how you ended up living in this house, in this place, that's how we begin these kinds of stories. What does Genesis 1-1 tell us? It says, in the beginning there was God. Before space and time there was God, the first cause, the prime mover. And many of us find this a very powerful image when we think about the universe that we inhabit because we find it hard to conceive that there wasn't a mind and a heart and a purpose behind all that we marvel at. And the Hebrew word for God used in this verse is Elohim, which is, which is the general all-purpose word for God in the Old Testament. It's not one of the names of God that reveals something specific about God's character, names like Jehovah Jireh, the Lord sees or the Lord provides. It's the general name. It's, it's rather like our English word God. So in English, we'd also say of God that he is our father or he's the almighty or he's sovereign or he's king of kings, which are more particular but Elohim here is uh, the general word for God. The first thing that we see God doing here in the Bible is there in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this word created is only used of God in the Old Testament. It's never used of people. And this word is artistic, it's used for the extraordinary sovereign acts of God who, like the greatest ever artist slash engineer, brings form, beauty, and purpose on unimaginably large canvases. In verse 1, we read that God initially created the heavens and the earth, which is a Hebrew way of saying everything. So here at the beginning, at the, at where we see the start of space and time, uh, we see uh, this summary of what God is calling into being. Have the next slide, please, Stuart, thank you. If you look at verse 2, this tells us more about this initial creation. It does so in three parallel phrases. First, that uh, the, what God starts with is formless and, powerful and, and empty. Uh, those words, tohu, vabohu. It, it, it's formless in that there are no habitats, there are no places, there are no spaces, there are no realms, there are no contexts for anything to happen or to be. It's empty also. There are no inhabitants or creatures. As we've seen, the rest of Genesis flows from those two words. God commands first form and structure on days one to three, and second calls forth creatures to dwell in the spaces he's made on days four, five, and six. The second phrase that is used is that there is darkness over the surface of the deep. This is a continuing picture of chaos and formlessness, although I don't believe it's supposed to be menacing. This is still God's creation, 
but it's yet to find full function and purpose. The third phrase is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. Now, we need to note that the translators have made a choice about meaning here. Now, in one sense, every translation does, but we have a particular instance here. As we heard, the Hebrew word in this uh, verse is ruach, which often means wind or breath. So we could simply have a final picture of chaos in that trio of images. The picture would then be, I guess, of a stormy sea at night. But the majority of translators would still translate this as the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, partly because this is how it's used later in the Bible, right up to and beyond the day of Pentecost, and partly because this primeval matter is not against God, it's simply unformed. It's unpurposed as yet. And so the, the hovering of the spirits is suggestive of all of the potential of creation that is going to be unleashed. So the overall impact of the second verse is to tell us about the raw material uh, of creation that God uses. Uh, these weren't things that God randomly finds lying around, but they are things that he is going to make beautiful and purposeful. And at the end of verse 2, if you like, we have a lump of clay or a block of stone that God, the creator, uh, is now going to, in a sense, unleash his artistic prowess on. God is yet to start shaping it and forming it to his purposes and pleasure. That is all to come, and we will see that in the next few weeks. So we've got four weeks left in Genesis 1, and then after Easter, we will look at Genesis 2 and 3. Now, if you're a member of a small group, you'll also have the chance to look at these verses in detail. I really hope that you enjoy doing so. And please feel free to come back to the preacher's team, uh, either with nuggets that you've discovered or further queries uh, that Brian will answer. Um, but <laughs> at, at the end of this first toe in the water of Genesis 1, some uh, initial observations. Uh, the first is a comment about beginnings. If we can have our next slide, please. Because of these verses, we believe in a beginning. Now, the f the, this brings us to our first engagement uh, with the world of science. And there are, of course, uh, some scientists, uh, real scientists here in the building. It won't be our last. Now, I've spoken about this issue at other times. I believe that the recent enmity between science and faith is a mistake on both sides. There would be no science without the Bible. There is a strong argument that science could find its beginnings in Genesis 2 when Adam is given the responsibility of naming all the livestock and the birds and the animals. But we know too that science and Christian faith have been in conflict at key moments over the last few hundred years. And that looking back, we recognize that some Christians have reacted negatively to scientific discoveries such as Galileo popularizing the idea that the Earth goes around the sun. And in our lifetime, we have seen Richard Dawkins and other new atheist thinkers promote the idea that science and religion are at loggerheads and that religion is the cause of many of the world's ills. 
This has made some Christians rather defensive and distrusting of science and the tremendous potential for good that it has. And we will continue to address this in our series. We should note, though, how insistent Genesis is that there was a beginning. Until the 1960s, this was looked down on as naive by many scientists. The consensus was that the universe had always existed, an idea actually that goes all the way back to Aristotle. It's only in my lifetime that the Big Bang Theory has emerged, uh, the scientific description of the beginnings of space and time. Now, the current estimate is that the, this was 13.8 billion years ago, and that all matter and energy uh, before that was compacted into a tiny ball of infinite de of density. Then there was uh, what is rather popularly described as a Big Bang, after which all that matter and all that energy started to expand rapidly and with enormous energy. Now, many Christians find this deeply satisfying as a way of describing powerfully, scientifically, and mechanically the beginning that we read of in Genesis 1. That's the first thought. The second thought is a thought about pictures and the truth. Sometimes people are tempted to restrict the concept of truth to science alone and believe that all other disciplines deal in fairy stories or conjecture. Now, this both ignores the fact that scientists use metaphors and pictures and analogies all the time and that there are really important ways in which we can communicate truth through metaphor and picture. Next slide, please, Stuart. This is one of the most famous examples. It was created by Harry Beck, a London underground technical draftsman, in 1931. His iconic design was initially rejected as being too radical because he chose not to represent distance or geography in his map of the underground. He stripped all of that information down to these wonderful colored crisscrossing lines. Now, nobody here believes that the London underground actually looks like this, or that there is a place that you can go in a hot air balloon over London and see the underground as it is laid out here. But does that mean that Beck's map isn't true? And does that mean that Beck's map isn't helpful both to the first-time traveler and the regular tube-goer? No. In fact, if someone presented us with a so-called literal map of the tube lines, we would find it endlessly confusing and all but impossible to make sense of. As the weeks go on, I think we will find that the early chapters of Genesis are deeply concerned with truth and how to present it in ways that inspire our worship and our gratitude and help us to see our true place in the world. Genesis has elegant, forceful, engaging truths to show us. Last slide, please, Stuart. We also became aware, well, we all, sorry, became aware of the existence and the nature of God in different ways. 
It's worth noting that when God first walks onto the page of the Bible, it is as a divine artist and a divine engineer of limitless imagination and power and splendor. Now that picture of God as artist and engineer is going to be colored in in the Bible. It's going to be filled out with many surprising twists and turns, not least the two high points of the Christian year, Christmas and Easter. But here in Genesis 1, we learn of a sovereign creator who brings order, form, structure, and beauty to the heavens and the earth that we now inhabit. And so we will have lost something if we don't let these magisterial words drive us to our knees in wordless marvel and grateful prayer and humble recognition of our small part in God's great, beautiful universe. So let's take up that thought as we worship together now.